Welcome to GLAN, your spatial fix for geography, life, and data. This podcast is brought to you by the Science of Cities and Regions program at the Alan Turing Institute. I'm Danny, your host for today, and I'm here at our studios in the British Library with Levi. Hello. And Rachel. Hi. We do something a little different every time, but there's always a healthy dose of all things geography, life, geography life, and data. And today we're trialing a new episode format that we're calling A Day in the Life of X, where we'll be interviewing Glad Fox to get the scoop and the behind the scenes view on what it's like to, be, to live their life. As an inaugural guest, we are thrilled to have on the studio with us Professor James Cheshire. Hi, James. Hi, Danny. And I was going to introduce himself and embarrass him with uh, some formal bio, but instead uh, we might keep things a bit more informal. Do you want to tell us a little bit who you are and what you do? Yeah, thanks. So I'm a professor of geographic information and cartography at the Department of Geography at UCL. And I'm actually also the director of a thing called the UCL Social Data Institute. So I guess I'm interested in the ways that data can be used uh, kind of innovatively to tell us interesting things about society and, and population at large, but I'm also intrigued by how you visualize data, particularly through maps, um, in interesting and compelling ways for people. And probably for all our audience who is maybe not as academic as, as we are in this room, if they've ever heard from you, they've probably heard from the books that you've published in the past. Yeah. Do you want to say a little bit about them? Yeah, that's right. So I probably lead kind of two, a bit of a dual life. So <laughs> the academic life in the, in the sense of what I'm employed to do largely by the university, which is research grants and academic publications and PhD supervision and all that kind of stuff. Um, but uh, the thing that I'm probably most known for outside of that are, you know, publishing what we would call sort of popular or general books. So, um, so far, you mean successful books? <laughs> well, <laughs> books that people read. Books, yeah, books that people buy and read. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, so the first one was called Under the Information Capital, which came out almost 10 years ago, I think. Um, and then we did one called Where the Animals Go, and then finally, a couple of years ago, Atlas of the Invisible. So it's an ongoing collaboration between me and um, a graphic designer named uh, Oliver Berti, who's, who's based in the US. So I've been very fortunate that all those things have been a real collaborative endeavor as well. Great. And we'll talk a little bit more about the, the books and, and maps. This series is really talking about through the routines of, of important or, or relevant people, what they do on a day-to-day -day basis. But before we get there, uh, I think it's important to maybe discuss a little bit how you got where you are. How do you, how does someone, well, on the one hand, come to be a successful academic directing a center at UCL and so on, but also at the same time, and almost as you say, as a hobby, publishing uh, incredibly successful books. So how did you get started in, in MAPS? When did you decide you wanted to be an academic and when you decided that your academic life was going to be about making maps. And did those happen at the same time? Uh, well, so, uh, no. <laughs> Five questions at the same time. Um, and thank you for, I mean, I was primed in advance uh, to think about this. And I, uh, it's a hard question to answer, actually. And I, I suspect the part of the honest answer is I just kind of never left um, school. <laughs> I just carried on going. So, um, I guess if we go back to high school days, I was interested in uh, geography. And I think I was interested in geography because it was something I was good at, basically. So, you know, I kind of enjoyed 
doing it, I enjoyed you know being outside, and um, I think that really motivated me. What parts of geography were you sorry were you interested in? Because as someone who you know wasn't brought up thinking about geography or or was trained in geography, when you say I was good at doing geography. You mean uh, going out in the in the wilderness, looking at maps, yeah, remembering well, capitals? <laughs> so, so map. I don't recall much about maps actually. I mean, so I, I was most interested in in physical geography. So, so actually, I, it was all mountains and rivers and glaciers and that kind of thing. So, when I was at school, that's kind of what I thought I wanted to do, and so I uh, went and did a physical geography degree at the University of Southampton. And that was really where I cultivated my interest in glaciology and, and stuff. And actually, I did, you know, uh, a thing called the Juno Icefield Research Program, which is a research program in Alaska. I spent two months on the Juno Icefield, kind of skiing across that and doing kind of field work there. My dissertation was on uh, geostatistics and icefield mass balance. Um, and actually, I had a I had an offer. I, I, my, the plan was to go to the Scott Polar Research Institute in Cambridge and do a master's degree in uh, polar science. But then, uh, uh, to this day, I don't really know what happened. Uh, but <laughs> I, I saw an advert for a PhD at UCL, um, and uh, I went for it. And, and I think I, in human geography, and in uh, it was actually in names analysis. That's what I ended up doing my PhD in. And, and I think that. The main kind of push factor there was I quickly realized that um, to do well in glaciology, it's basically physics, right? You have to understand like basal deformation flows of ice and or even remote sensing, which comes down to a lot of physics as well. And that level of kind of uh, specificity around the sorts of things that uh, I would have had to have done, I think deep down I thought it's not really for me. I mean, I like the general picture you know i like being on a glacier i like thinking about the processes in general but this idea of you know getting into such a specific part of it i don't think was one of my strengths um and again you know bizarrely uh, the, the the modules i did worst at at university i think were remote sensing and gis so um uh, <laughs> there's uh, a yeah. lesson there yes um I just, uh, and I think it was an applications thing, really, that was the problem, actually. I just didn't see the application of a lot of it. So in the original introduction that Danny had written for you, he referred to you as a rock star of maps. And so I'm sort of curious where in this academic training the map piece comes in. So it, there's an origin there in the sense that I think when it came to the glaciology, I was interested in how you map stuff and how you communicate what's going on. And of course... For those of you unfamiliar with the British geography system at university, and actually things are slightly different now, I would say, but at least when I was there in the mid uh, 2000s, um, human geography wasn't really, there wasn't really anything about quantitative methods or mapping or anything in the, on the human geography side. So actually you find that there's quite a few people mm. who you might think of today as principally doing maps and, and things like that. They did physical geography, actually, because that's where they could see that avenue of communication, um, uh, uh, of you know, communicating with data and, and, and working with it in a GIS and so on. So I think I was interested, so in, in my in my undergraduate dissertation, I had a supervisor who told me how to learn R. So I taught myself R. We didn't do any programming or anything at that point. 
um, that's what got me into this idea of kind of data wrangling. And, and, and then I really enjoyed, you know, how you might visualize the data I've got. Um, but in terms of like saying, right, well, I'm going to make maps. I mean, that didn't come until much later. So I, in, in my PhD, I was interested in, in getting data to a point where it could tell you something, you know, useful. And it just so happened that out of the blue, I had an email from National Geographic and Oliver uh, Uberti, who's my, who's since become my longtime collaborator. They were fishing around for data about surnames, which is what I was doing my PhD on. And they wanted to do a, a, a map of North American names. And um, I supplied them with data for that and got to see a bit about that process of communicating uh, through data. And I think it just slowly you know, something that slowly grew. It wasn't anything that explicitly, mm. I was explicitly told, you know, people explicitly woke up one day, so right, I'm going to make maps and do visualizations. Um, it's something that grew and, and we started, you know, there's, there's people around UCL, a guy named Maurizio Jibin, uh, who uh, was a postdoc working in, in the group I was part of there. He, he went on to become a lecturer at Birkbeck and actually since come back uh, to us, but he did one of the first ever interactive web maps of um, London and developed that. And so at the time there was some cool stuff happening. Mm. I think that I thought this is kind of interesting. Um, and as I say, it was an evolution. It wasn't really something I decided I was going to do and then get any kind of formal training and all the stuff that, you know, you might think of having to do if you wanted to just, you know, start the day by uh, <laughs> learning how to make maps. So have you, have you had formal cartography courses? Uh, I haven't taken anything like that. Wow, interesting. Yeah. Well, I guess, uh, speaking of starting days, um, walk us through what a kind of a day in your life looks like. How do you kind of uh, get motivated to, to start a day making maps? Um, well, I, I don't think I have a, a typical day. I would probably say I have a typical week. And so, you know, the things that I need, you know, the things that I have to, you know, the blocks of time I would allocate in a week. One, sort of talking to PhD students, so I'm a grad student, um, which I generally do on a Friday afternoon, actually. There's uh, kind of catching up on how things are getting on, you know, with the Social Data Institute. So making sure that, you know, that anything that is emanating from that I'm pursuing. Then obviously blocks of time allocated to supervisions if it's term time for undergraduate dissertations and then obviously formal teaching office hours. So I think of it in terms of a week, you know, where these chunks of time have come out. Right. And then that just leaves the kind of interstitial spaces to then think about what else I might do. And I think it depends broadly kind of what phase I'm in, in terms of some of the work I'm doing. So I like working on books and obviously that's principally actually my, my principal creative output is that and of course there's different phases in in that so there may be floating around looking for ideas um or there may be kind of complete finishing stuff where you're sure and, and like... why is that because for an acad contemporary academic books certainly in some disciplines are not the normal medium no? you think of or at least Maybe I'm biased, but you think of ideas in terms of paper. This is an idea for a paper. This is maybe an idea for a project with uh, several papers. And it's not as common to think of ideas as this is a book I want to do. But how do you approach that? 
Well, I think there are, there's two two there's two reasons that I I like doing it. So one is what you alluded to at the beginning, which is people do actually read them and pick them up. <laughs> and I like the challenge of being able to create something that does have a broad appeal to it, because um, it is a challenge and it's a hard thing to do. So that's part of the pleasure I get, you know, is actually thinking through that stuff. I mean, the, the, the idea that the books themselves is this idea that the, um, you know, whole is, is greater than the, the constituent parts, you know, in the sense that you can pull together something that um, is a collection of maps that, that, that hangs together in a way. Now, we don't obviously have like a narrative running through them, but it does you know, you can put the thing down and you can say, this is a collection of something. And that's something that Oliver and I, um, I think we both, you know, for, for different reasons, you know, we get a lot of pleasure out of doing that. And well, we have got a lot of pleasure out of doing that. So this, it sounds very collaborative, this interaction with him. How does that work in principle? Do you, does it take a lot of together time or meeting time, discussion time? How do you organize that balance of who does what? And yeah, so we we started out. So so we started out uh, uh, on our collaboration with with the first book, which was Love of the Information Capital, and that really came out of um, I'd actually been approached uh, to to think about doing a book about London because I had a, a blog with another Oliver Oliver O'Brien. Of London maps, and it was about the time that um, Information is Beautiful had come out, the David McCandless book. So there's a lot of interest around infographics and that kind of thing. So the publisher was interested in picking something else up. Um, and uh, actually, the publisher that originally approached us weren't interested after all, but it gave me a, a chance to kind of work up a proper proposal. What, what, what struck me straight away, and I think this was a kind of a you know, a good decision was was the idea that the designer that you work with has to have an equal footing uh, as as uh, you as the academic say in that relationship. Because what generally happens is, you know, we as academics might create a load of maps and then you send them to some designer who then has to try and squeeze them onto a page and make them look good. Whereas if if that process is collaborative at every stage, then you can make some really crucial decisions at the beginning of a map. Um, like, you know, the scale you're looking at, how much to generalize the data, how much aggregation you might do on a data set, all that kind of stuff you can do at the, at the outset. Um, and then it makes the design work a lot, a lot easier. And, and one other thing I would, I would say is that, you know, Oliver's background was from National Geographic as a senior design editor there, and then he went freelance. You know, his whole life is about narrative and story and, and, and why is this interesting for people? And again, that is a real education from an academic perspective where we don't, we rarely think about it from that kind of perspective. And so that that's a important thing. So to, to answer the question about kind of the process, we over like hundreds and hundreds of maps now, we kind of, we have to, we speak less and less now, but at the time we would, when we're doing big projects, it's twice a week, we have at least hour long calls where we talk through yeah. Stuff. Yeah, I was wondering, is it primarily verbal or are you trading sketches or, or manipulating kind of objects graphically? Like how practically does that work when you collaborate on something so visual? Um, the recent project, so Atlas of the Invisible was all run off GitHub, actually. We had a GitHub uh, like Kanban board almost thing where every, every spread, so we, we break everything down into spreads and every spread had a whole thread of stuff. And 
generally speaking, it would start off as an idea. And again, as a collaboration, you can pitch stuff to one another. Yeah. And then you would try and work something up as a draft. So, I mean, my job, uh, once we have the idea of the form, my job is to create stuff that is then easily manipulated in Illustrator, InDesign, or anything like that. So, actually, vector. Yeah, so vector PDFs principally. <clears throat> so, what I hand over to Oliver looks, te looks terrible. Like if you look at it, it just looks like a real kind of mess of awful colors and all the rest of it. But that doesn't matter. And that is one thing we learned actually um, that we. I don't need to, in, in our particular process, actually, I don't need to invest a huge amount of time in the visual elements um, because that's something he's going to take care of because that's his strength. A lot of my strength is in getting the data in such a format and the exports in such a format that then could be easily placed into the, the visualization. So to get back to this sort of idea of like a day in the life of, it sounds like the daily routine and that daily sort of ebb and flow isn't really the scale at which it would be helpful to think about what you do, but, and maybe not even weekly, but if you think about these sort of projects, there must be periods where it's all encompassing and that's the only thing you're really thinking about as you're sort of ramping up to finish your project. And then afterwards, I don't know, do your time horizon sort of open up and you then, what do you do? Do you catch up on things or <laughs> what? <laughs> Go go cold turkey on on mapping. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, uh, it, it. So so I mean, every project. And so so the um, the London book was was a year. It was like insane. It was like a year. So even so, it's a graphic every three days. We had to try and churn out, and at the end of it, it was just horrendous. And there's yeah. no way I would ever do that again. Absolutely invisible took a lot longer, partly because we weren't prepared to like, you know, kill ourselves trying to get it done. <laughs> And partly because the, the job has changed, actually, um, because back when we were doing the London book, there was a lot of uh, interest in just new ways of visualizing stuff. Data journalism hadn't really taken off, all these kinds of things that we... And so people at large were not exposed to visualizations in the way that they are today. So in order to kind of make progress, you have to focus much more on the story and what people are going to take away from something rather than how it looks. And that takes a lot more research. And so yeah. in terms of the phases, there is definitely a phase where you can essentially can't always rush it. You just have to kind of do as much background on something as possible. And, and how much of this is working to external deadlines and how much of this is internal deadline for you? I mean, how much scope do you have to say, here's how long I think I would like to take to produce this next volume? Um, it's a bit of both. I mean, publishers generally, uh, they will say they they want the best book. So they're not, if they see it as a false economy and you'd agree, you know, if, yeah. if you push someone too hard and they give you something that's rubbish, then it's not in their interest to do that. But equally coming back to this kind of like the arc of the sort of trajectory you might be on over the course of a year or a couple of years, you know, you do want to get stuff finished so you can then move on to the next thing. And and it, and, and having a deadline is really helpful because you, it does force you to finish something because these things can never, you, you could never finish right. otherwise. So. In terms of like the, the practicality of, of doing that work though, I wonder if this longer cadence maybe means that you have different ways of working in those different periods? Do you find yourself like reviewing proofs in a pub, but maybe doing the composition at your desk at home? Is there any kind of rhythm like that, that, that you find yourself falling into? Um, 
No, I mean, I, I, I would say that... Uh, I, I think it's interesting. I mean, we, we try and... Um, particularly when we're together, actually. So, so, so on the, on the book project, you know, Oliver and I, generally speaking, would spend a week or two together doing a kind of intensive period of work. And we just about got in ahead of the pandemic, actually, for the Atlas Invisible. Um, but then beyond that, most of that work was done remotely. Um, but when we're together, we do try and do creative things together, actually. So actually, he, you know, uh, uh, AAG and, uh, Detroit, you know, he, he came in because we'd got an award um, for that. So, um, you know, I spent some time with him there and we went to the, you know, art museum and various other bits together and, 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 and we're kind of pick, picking up on ideas and things. Um, uh, and, and I think in, in kind of the research phase and stuff, trying to immerse yourself in things is quite important. But there is then a switch that goes off that says in your mind, well, then, you know, I've got to finish this. I've got enough. And it's true of like, you know, I say it's my PhD students, right? You know, it's not writing a lit review. You know, you could spend your, you know, your entire life could be consumed with writing a lit review. But one day you've got to wake up and say, today I've got to stop doing this thing. I've got more than enough content to justify what I do, you know, to, to move on. I'm just going to leave it there and move on. And that's, that's the next phase. Um, and I think again, you know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, we still work on stuff. We're not doing a book together explicitly, but we have just finished a project with some researchers uh, uh, at the University of Oxford, um, an economic geographer called uh, uh, Derek Wojcik, who's just, he's actually just left uh, Oxford, but he uh, kind of commissioned us initially, but we've kind of became much more of a collaboration to create a thing called the Atlas of, an Atlas of Finance, which is going to come out next year with Yale. And he had this team of postdocs, and he was in charge, but they were, you know, everyone working collaboratively, uh, uh, generating ideas and doing the research to then go in this book. And then Oliver and I's job was to try and kind of get those guys to a point where they were creating stuff that then could become spreads for an atlas and a story. And that was a really interesting process because it, 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 it's, and quite rewarding because it was an, a way for me to kind of, uh, from from my academic perspective and my role in, in 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 these processes, get those guys thinking in the way that I might have to think in the way that we mm. were creating stuff. And that that was quite I enjoyed doing that, and it was quite productive actually um, in in thinking about how you communicate research findings to a broader to a broader audience. And how? Yeah. Okay. How do you? Take book topics because it's well, risky maybe is not the word, but it's a long term decision, right? Like, whenever you and going back to the paper analogy, you know, you may realize that the idea on a paper is not the one that you really wanted, but ultimately, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 not a, a huge chunk of your life in the big scheme of things, but a book I can imagine it's a multi year eventually when it's all said and done, definitely. Yeah, so so the, the the general idea is we want to do something that other people haven't done before, and I think our kind of what we consider our unique selling point is making a case for data that hasn't previously been been made, I suppose. So, love of the information capital was kind of it was 
uh, an easy idea in the sense that it was like open data was just starting. People hadn't used it in a big way. This was like a real kind of presentation of what open data was for cities and what it, what it could do. Uh, where the animals go always sounds like a bit of a weird uh, transition. In a sense, it is, but it, but the rationale was the same, and it was largely from Oliver's work at National Geographic, where he knew that there was this whole uh, revolution happening within zoology and biology and stuff around biologging, the idea that you could attach sensors to animals and generate tons of data. So at the time, you know, there was suddenly all these guys that used to be like, trailing baboons you know by foot or in a land rover were getting like gazillions of uh, gps points back and the cutting edge for most people was google earth map you know and so 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 actually communicating that in different ways and it, that's what kind of got me into this thinking about how academics might communicate with their days more generally because a lot of the conversations i was having was with researchers saying well hang on how about we do it this way or that way and then Atlas the Invisible was the same. It was kind of a more global perspective on the way that things like Earth observation and uh, all these other kind of new forms of data are proliferating and they can tell us stories at a global level. I kind of like to pick up on Levi's last question and just think a little bit about like um, how and where you work, if that's something that we could spend a few minutes on. Like, do you go to the office? Do you wake up at the same time every morning? have your breakfast, go to the office, work for eight hours, go home. Do you vary? Do you have preferences in how you, how you work and when you work? Um, I'm, well, I'm, I'm fairly routine-driven um, in the sense that I kind of get up roughly at the same time. I mean, I gem yeah, generally speaking, I like to be at my desk sort of 9.30ish at um, some days I'm early, some days I'm late, but, but that's broadly it. And then, you know, I whatever, like to have morning coffee, you know, and then afternoon coffee and all that kind of stuff. And I think I struggle, if I'm honest, about kind of when, when my most productive periods are. I think it's, um, well, I should say my least, I, I'm least productive mid-afternoon. So what tends to happen is, particularly under pressure, uh, you know, I might be quite productive in the morning, the morning's good for reviewing things, actually, often. I think uh, a thing I got into when I was in my PhD, actually, was I would generally kind of write late into the night, wake up, review it the following morning, hmm. have a mid-afternoon slump, and then start again. And, and I have tried... It's not, it's not a great pattern, right? You know, working in the evenings, and it's something I've squeezed out, actually, quite a lot. Um, but I think um, it's still a natural period for me to work if, if I'm under pressure, right? But yeah. Not super late. I would never work past midnight. It's always sort of from nine till midnight, really. Is the... Yeah, for me, I have sort of an internal rule, like no starting to write at 4.30 or 5 in the afternoon because uh, I'll just lose myself and then I just, I never come home. So I... <laughs> <laughs> it is good while it's happening. It feels like a really good thing because I'm really, really productive. It's not a good thing if you have somebody who put your dinner on the table <laughs> waiting for you. Um, yeah, and when you say getting to your desk in the morning, is it like the same desk? Like, do you you go to the office every day? Uh, what I try and do is block together. So, so I I come into go into campus twice a week, sometimes three times a week, um, if there's. Um, meetings and bits and pieces to do and I am 
you know, that's not a writing day or anything like that. That would be me trying to like just see people and, and do stuff. Uh, and then otherwise I'm working from home. But but yeah, generally, I you know, I, I have quite a nice, I'm fortunate that I've got quite a nice office space at home. So I'm quite happy, quite happy there. Um, How about coffee shops? As well. To work at coffee <laughs> shops for... Fortunately, where I live in London, well, fortunately, I've, I was an early wave of gentrifiers in uh, northeast London where I live. So actually, when we first moved in, there was no coffee shops, but now there's proliferation of sourdough bakeries and coffee shops. But actually, I don't. it's interesting. I mean, uh, partly I think because there was a period where those things, I didn't have access to those things where I lived. I kind of got out of the routine of working in them. So when I was in my PhD, I would... But actually having the space at home is another big thing. And I think, again, I feel kind of fortunate that I can do that. And I think I, I feel I need to get out every day. And we have a, a dog that's, you know, is a good, you know, you have to, care of that. <laughs> yeah. you have to go and take the dog out. And, and that's great. Um, although, unfortunately, our dog likes walking less than we do. So if, it, if it's raining <laughs> or cold or too early or anything like that, he won't go out. But generally speaking, you know, going for a walk is what I like doing to kind of clear my head. And if I haven't done something like that, I get a bit grouchy, I think, and less productive, you know, particularly that mid afternoon period is when I, if I'm sat there under stress going, I'm getting nowhere with this. I think that was a, a, a moment getting to a point where I was comfortable just saying, I'm just going to blow off the next two hours because I'm not going to do anything. Well, um, I think it's quite important. Um, to be comfortable making that decision, knowing that you're not going to be any more productive even if you just sat there staring at the screen. And do you think if if you were to go back 10 or 15 years, are you where you thought you would be, both in terms of what you do, but also sort of how you spend your time? Like, is this what you thought you were going to grow up and be? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, where I'm from, actually, in, in Essex, is there's no universities around, so there's not that kind of you're not exposed to people that or you're not exposed to universities necessarily. And, you know, neither of my parents uh, went to university. So in a sense, it was, I was fortunate in that I didn't really have any expectations around what university was or what, you know, my parents were very supportive, but they didn't say, oh, you know, some friends of mine whose parents went to uni, you know, they had a clear view about what universities yeah. you should go to, what you should study to get a job, all that kind of stuff. None of that. I had none of that. And I think it must have been like a widening access day or something. I'm not quite sure what it would have been back then. But I remember spending a couple of days at a residential thing at University of Cambridge and um, some academics there um, talking about academic life. And I think what struck me was they were making the case that you could spend time doing whatever you wanted in terms of your interests, right? You could pursue interests that were stuff you were interested in. You could spend a significant amount of time looking at um, and that's what appealed to me and I think you know for all the kind of bad stuff that's been happening in the sector in the last decade or so I do think that there there aren't many jobs where actually you can say I spent a few hours today doing something I was genuinely interested in and so that self-motivation is what 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 drives me I think that idea that I'm doing something I'm interested in that's really important because if that's not there then I think everything else melts away I wanted to ask 
also, so one of the things that you sort of mentioned in passing when you introduced yourself is that you directed the, um, this institute at UCL. That may even going to make the wild bet that that's not what you expected 10 years ago, or did you see yourself leading an institute? And, and then can you maybe walk us through what that means? Because sometimes I, you, know, you see directors and you, Imagine, you try to imagine what their life is, and I actually don't know what their life is. A writer, we have a lot of images, right, from history of what being a writer is or maybe being a painter, yeah, yeah, but being yeah. an institute director, <laughs> maybe it's slightly less appealing, but it's it's equally probably um, exciting so, I mean, in some the, ways. So the motivation for that, if I'm really honest, came from a pl place where I was there was no traction within geography, frankly, for what I was doing at the time, right? So, so uh, as a discipline, as I, as I alluded to before, I mean, geography is a hard place to be, actually, if you're into kind of quant data and all that kind of stuff, in particularly in the UK. And I was, I was actually, I was fortunate because when I left, when I finished my PhD, I went straight into a lectureship at Centre of Advanced Spatial Analysis, which actually had a very different culture to geography departments. It was quite kind of research focused. It was open plan office. You know, you're talking to people all the time. And that was actually a good, a great place to start. Um, and then actually I, because I still felt um, allegiance to geography, I then took a lectureship in the geography department as part of the QSTEP program, which was this funding explicitly designed to augment um, quantitative methods in the social sciences. And actually, if you look across the UK, that was a, it took a, a while to bed in, but you can see the places now that are doing more of this stuff. You know, they had a QSTEP affiliation. Anyway, um, so back then, when I joined the geography department, I mean, there were one or two people around. You know, Paul Longley was my supervisor; he's still around, but he was running big grants, not massively involved in direct teaching. And so the the teaching there was like, you know, students got taught some kind of regression, forgot all about it in the second year, was taught the same thing again, and hated it. And that was it, you know. And I could see myself in a lot of those students. And I was really motivated to try and do better and, and try and expand, you know, the fact that this stuff was useful and, and important. Um, and that's really, but that's been my mission in my time at UCL. So we've grown. So so part of that mission was growing QSTEP. So, you know, um, I took over as director a few a few years into it, and you know, we've now got like four hundred students on the stream there. We had two students, I think when I started geography, I was lucky if I had two students a year doing quantitative dissertations. We're now up to like 20. Um, and that, that growth is, is what sustains things. And so actually, uh, the Institute was a, was a spin out from a lot of that. So it was me um, feeling like I'd reached a limit within the geography department and actually getting faculty buy-in to what we were doing as well. So we're in a social and historical sciences. There's people around, which again had this, there was a real sense that the faculty is doing a lot of interesting stuff, but, but, but actually within departments, people are quite isolated and there's not a strong advocate for why data science, quant, all that kind of stuff is useful. And so that's what my job is. It's to what does that, for that look like day to day? What is, is that talking to a lot of people? Um, Executing on decisions, <laughs> yeah, what, hustling for resources. Hustling. There's a lot of hustling. There's a lot of <laughs> making sure that 
Um, I think hustling is a good word, actually. I think I think UCL is a place where you have to do a lot of hustling. <laughs> and, um, I quite like it for that. Um, so it's things like talking to the advanced research computing people and saying, you know, you guys are not doing anything for social sciences particularly. Why, you know, are you prioritising, or why does it? Why is that the case? Or why don't we have proper IT support in other areas? And can't our students access? Those sorts of things, and, and, and so there's a, there's an element of that. There's there's also an element, I think, of identity, which I think is really important. So knowing who, you know, if someone approaches UCL somewhere and says we need someone in social science or we we have this problem, knowing that there's someone you can pick the phone up to and say, well, this guy he has a brand behind him. Uh, let's go and ask him. Um, and that has that has had a really big impact actually in terms of everything from sort of thinking about philanthropy through to you know we run an internship program where we have 20 odd students a year do data science internships um talking to different uh, potential commercial partners building out a program of modules and research um, research-led teaching you know making a new appointment in that area all that kind of stuff and, and actually yeah much of what i I see my job as doing is providing kind of a steady hand on the tiller that's just saying at the faculty level, this is how we're progressing things. And it's, I've been very keen that it's from the ground up. So, you know, universities are very good at creating websites of collections of people that don't have any resource behind them. My view was, I'm only going to do this if the people involved, if we have a, a, a team that's properly costed out to focus on these things and that we have a resource and a funding model that we can sustain. And then it's small in terms of its footprint, it's quite small, but I, I'm much more comfortable with that rather than pretending that there's like 200 academics involved because um, it's like herding cats and you, you lose that central kind of um, uh, focus. So that's that's what the Social Data Institute is all about. Um, and I, I do enjoy I do enjoy that work because you do feel like you can make a difference and you can facilitate opportunities for other people is that something you you saw yourself doing say 15 years ago um probably not i mean i i i think this may go back to kind of not really you know when i was thinking about you know not really knowing what the university was or or the expectations around it but I, i don't i'm not really motivated by how many papers I've got or research income I've generated and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I know that you've got to do those things, but actually I've made, and I'm in an incredibly fortunate position, I can say this, right? Because I'm a professor, right? At UCL. So, so I'm not having to climb a greasy pole anymore because I'm kind of, I've reached a level where I'm not too worried about this stuff. My life is not going to change substantially one way or the other unless I decide I want to go into university management in a big way or something but but i can sit there and say well all right we'll facilitate these opportunities for other people and i don't i quite enjoy i do quite enjoy doing that um i mean i mean i'm not i'm not completely selfless right i do there is self-interest in there as well in terms of building your own brand and group and all that kind of stuff but but i felt very liberated i think actually and, and, and being put in charge of soda was helpful it, it did liberate me because it meant that i wasn't constantly having to kind of um feel like i needed to justify my own existence within the department and, and all the rest of it you know i, I mm-hmm. felt like i'd won that 
battle and now it was just you know growth and, and expansion and and, and and fixing problems I, I wouldn't do it as a full-time job i like mm. bits that i like doing but i still really value the creativity and trying to keep on top of stuff and all the rest of it with the and, and the challenge that comes with you know the research and the books as well yeah i was just going to say it sounds like you have almost an ideal life that is sort of half administrative and half a completely creative process is that ideal is that sort of you know how you would like to see your time divided or is there is there a tension there between the two um i think the tension the tension emerges when i feel like i'm not making progress on either of those fronts and one feels like it's um preventing the other so when it's all going well it's great but when when that tension emerges that's when it that's when i get stressed yeah and then practically speaking do you feel like you kind of have to keep those tasks set separate like can you do administration on one day and research the next or do you are they all jumbled together and, and how does that affect your way of doing things uh, um i would they're fairly jumbled together i think what you know the routine i get into and, and i think that the mindset you get into is like every day something is gonna yeah. <laughs> you're gonna wake up and there's you think today's the day that you know i'm gonna do this thing and then you'll get some email or there'll be something that happens and you're just like oh god okay and i try and get that stuff out of the way as quickly as possible and so when i get stressed it's like when when those things just keep coming at you yeah. and 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 you just have to keep battling through it and so i can't you can't switch it on and off so for example i mean in in the creative in the creative way with the books and all this, we do switch from graphics to writing so we don't you don't you can't in in parallel it's quite hard to create the graphic and write about it actually what we generally do is we get all the graphics done all that work out of the way and then you switch gear and you think about the writing um and that's probably the same in a, in a lot of other ways you you know you know i say to my students you know the, the great thing about phd is you can wake up and you can spend eight hours focused on the one one you've got one problem you need to solve and you can spend eight solid hours trying to solve that problem um trying to be alert to those kinds of issues and creating space to solve them i think is really important because spending one hour a day on that kind of problem doesn't get you anywhere generally so that's i think that's where i've become smarter in the way that i've been working trying to kind of get those problems allocated proper time yeah i mean i think we're probably slowly winding down on the amount of time that we've got and i wondered if we could just spend maybe the few remaining minutes talking about work-life balance do you have one, Do I have one? <laughs> um i i mean i always hesitate to ask this question because I think work-life balance is incredibly important, but I think it means different things to different people. And, and actually, some people start at eight and finish at four, and they're incredibly productive in that in that period, and that works for them. I'm not that person, and I am genuinely interested at a kind of level of a hobby, you know, <laughs> in maps and all yeah. that kind of stuff. So, so these things all bleed into one another. Um, what I, what I tend to do is, um, so, so in that sense, I'm not super disciplined, right? So there will be evenings where I work weekends, 
particularly if I'm committing to a book, I'm like, well, I'm going to be doing work over the, over the weekends. And that's partly a space thing, right? It's partly giving yourself a bit of space to spend some time on stuff. Where I have got a lot better um, than, than, say, in the first few years of my career is, is actually partitioning that time. So I will say, you know, crappy admin jobs, all those sorts of things I will not tackle outside of yeah, these hours. Right. Um, I'm not going to burden myself with that stuff. But, you know, if I'm feeling creative on a Sunday afternoon and I've got time to do that, I will happily kind of work on those sorts of things. But, um, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, it, it, I always think in academia it's tricky because the, the analogy I always use is it's a bit like a self-employed, right? Yeah. <laughs> you just keep... You, the more work you do, the more you can get on a CV and the further you go, right? And that's one of the... It's a really tricky thing because you, you can't tell people if not they're into strive. something. Yeah, you yeah. can't tell mm -hmm. them not to work. But equally, yeah. you do have to create an environment where those who are, you know, work in different ways are able to do that without there being sort of um, a massive penalty on them. I think, I mean, I could go on for a very long time asking questions and, and keeping the conversation. But in the interest of keeping our podcast to, uh, <laughs> within time and our podcast audience uh, free for doing other things uh, on podcast life balance, uh, might be a good opportunity now to start winding down. Uh, thank you very much, James, for coming. Uh, you get to, to be the inaugural guest for uh, a day in the life of, and, and that's uh, that stays there. Uh, and for everyone else, thanks very much. That does it for today. Uh, just a couple of reminders. We now have a email, uh, account, the glad podcast at gmail.com. Uh, Levi, do you want to say something about it? Yeah, sure. So, um, a lot of you have gotten in touch with, uh, Rachel, Danny, or me saying, Oh, I really want to hear y'all talk about this or talk to this person about my favorite subject. So please let us know what you think and what you'd like us either to talk about or anybody you'd like to talk to uh, by emailing thegladpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we're happy to answer questions that, that we get there. And who knows, maybe we'll uh, even make the episode uh, you're interested in. So keep in touch. Yes, and uh, we, you might have noticed we're trying to get into a schedule of once a month. We are not going to go as far as uh, picking a day <laughs> in the month to, to say when we drop the new episode, but that's our, our goal. So with that, until next month, we are glad you're here.